Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast. In today's episode, we sat down with our guest, Dr. Tina Morris, Executive Director at the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. Tina has a distinguished career in the pharmaceutical industry, including senior leadership roles at U.S. Pharmacopeia, Parental Drug Association, and most recently, the AAPS. She helped us understand the importance of these industry organizations and how we can make a difference by getting involved. She brings real credibility as a scientist in her leadership roles as we heard about her experience as a senior level scientist at Cyphergen and Human Genome Sciences. To top it off, we also enjoyed hitting some highlights of science from 2020 and beyond, talking science as scientists do. So without further ado, here's the fifth episode of Molecular Moments. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. I'm delighted that you've joined me today. Can you start by just giving us a few highlights of your career? Thank you, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Thank you for inviting me. I've been with the AAPS since April as the executive director, but I would say my involvement with the organization goes almost my entire career in the United States. I'm a virologist by training, which is uh, shockingly popular this year for obvious reasons. Um, but I would say I've spent most of my career working on proteins. So I have a PhD in molecular virology. I did a postdoc in Tony Fauci's institute at NIH, the NIAID. I worked on hepatitis there. Then I went into industry. You mentioned Cyphergen. That was my first industry job, very small startup company at the time. And uh, then went to human genome sciences, I would say during the heyday of the genomics era, and then worked at the USP for a very long time, for over 15 years in a number of different roles. But I would say for the longest time as their head of global biologics, and then most recently as the head of compendial science, before I went to the Parental Drug Association as the head of scientific and regulatory affairs for almost two years. And uh, this April, I joined AAPS during a very interesting year. I hadn't realized until I was doing a little background research that you were German, actually, even having had several conversations, you've managed to lose a bit of your accent. But uh, I'm curious about maybe growing up in Germany and the German education system and how you kind of move into this, uh, into being a scientist coming out of Germany. I grew up in northern Germany. I'm from Lübeck, which is one of the original Hanseatic League cities. And most people in the world know Lübeck because of one product, that is marzipan. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and so everybody who knows me pumps me for it. My mom sends it over for Christmas. So it's a very popular item. But um, yeah, I went to school there. And in Germany, I would say one of the biggest differences is in terms of education that you have to make up your mind about your direction of study when you go to college much, much earlier. So I would say pretty much in high school, you have to, at the end of high school, you have to decide, am I going to be life sciences person? Am I going to go into medicine, life sciences, or am I going to, you know, choose liberal arts, you know, history, something like that. And so that's a little bit different. I think in, in America, you know, the, the first couple of years of college, I think there's a much, much wider, more broader, different type of education. So I think I had to pretty much decide when I started college that I was going to go into the life sciences. And so 
I went to the University of Oldenburg and my bachelor's and master's are in biology. Over those years, I decided I wanted to really go into molecular biology. It was an interesting time. I think when I was in my last year in Oldenburg, PCR hit the big time and we know that PCR changed everything, right? So by the time I got into graduate school, it was the tool. It was very, very important. PCR, having PCR cloning, sequencing available as tools was a huge game changer. I would say both my undergrad and my graduate experience were different because I did my graduate school training at a medical university. So I switched from a biology background that was very broad at a university that was more focused on, I would say, marine biology, ecological studies, very early focused there on environmental things. Uh, That's a very important topic in Germany, has been for a long time. Then switching over into a sort of molecular biology and uh, really changing focus to forever then (laughs) into sort of more uh, public health and uh, pharmaceutical uh, focus. When I was thinking about your involvement in USP and PDA and AAPS, that sort of like a civil service of the pharmaceutical industry in a way, uh, we'll come back to those uh, those topics in, in some depth. Was it unusual at that time for women to be going into science in Germany? I would say yes and no. I was very lucky. I would say that I had good mentors and I, I was always surrounded by people, including my family who were very strong believers and who lived sort of that equality. I also had some great mentors over my graduate advisor in Lübeck, Verena Gauss-Müller. She's a very well-known virologist, a real force of nature, (laughs) I have to say. Uh, She wouldn't mind me saying that. It's true. Everybody who knows her knows that. And uh, that made a big difference. And I think it was also that sort of where I was encouraged to go out into the world. And I think at, I would say my generation of scientists who were educated at that time in in Germany, but in general in Europe, were strongly encouraged and still are to do uh, postdoc work uh, abroad. And as soon as I entered graduate school, it was like, you got to go do something else. You got to go into another country. You got to expand your horizon. And uh, I would say Verena was instrumental in that. Um, I think she was pretty much a trailblazer in her own right, I think, in her own career. And I think if you work with people like that, if you have people like that as as your mentors, it's it's very important because they give you that confidence that you can go out and do things and she always pushed us out the door, go do a poster here, go travel to this, I'll find money, or you can get a fellowship or something. So that was important. That was very important. One of the things I've noticed um, in these conversations uh, since I've been doing the podcast now is that uh, the many very accomplished people I've had have had impeccable timing for their career choices and the fields of study and and things like that. And I noticed uh 
I think you have as well in some of the directions that you've gone. And I'm interested in your landing at Cyphergen, which I don't think it's it was bought by someone at some point, but it was really a proteomics focus, I believe. And then and then Human Genome Sciences, which is of course famous as a Craig Venter organization at the, you know, just when it was at the height of the of the DNA revolution and the sequencing and all that. So yeah, I'd like to hear more about why you picked those companies and what you know, what you're able to do and learn and, and pick up in those, uh, in those positions? I guess I was really lucky. I, I, um, I was at the end of my postdoc um, at, at NIH, and I was really, even though it was in virology, I was really doing protein science. So I got more and more interested in protein characterization tools. At the same time, I was trying to find another job because tenure or tenure track positions at NIH were very, very hard to come by. And so I pretty much, I can't even remember how many applications I wrote. Then I got a call from Cyphergen, and it's, it was a very small company. They got bought later on. Affinity Mass Spectrometry platform, very interesting. The inventor of the technology, Bill Hutchins and Bill Rich, were the, the heads of the company at the time. Bill Rich is of Dionics fame, so he was not new to new technical ventures. Uh, drove out on a dark January morning to be interviewed at BWI Airport <laughs> by those two guys. And it was a 32-person company with a brand new technology. And uh, yeah, that was my first job. And it was very interesting. I was a, a field scientist, basically. Repaired mass specs figured out protein applications, you know, worked with a lot of pharmaceutical companies. And as it happened, we did a project at the Institute for Genomic Research. That was Craig Venter's Institute at the time. Met some very interesting people there who are, you know, have all moved on in the world now. And then also did a project at HGS. So HGS and Tiger were linked at the time, but then became separate, uh, totally separate entities where HGS was the, the commercial drug development company. And then Craig continued on his way down the, uh, the nonprofit route of, which is now the J. Craig Venter Institute. HGS, because of the, they of course were at the peak of the uh, genome sequencing, gene patenting, you know, discovery phase, we're starting to build up the protein efforts because they realized, you know, after sequencing, once we identify targets, we have to have, we have to have the proteomics tools. So uh, Bill Heseltine became very interested in the Cyphergen technology because he was hoping that it would be sort of a, um, you know, the proteomics complement to what they were doing in, in gene sequencing. You know, Bill is a, a visionary guy. I think somebody, I can't remember which reporter, he'll, he'll tell you, called him a renaissance man when they did a, did a profile on him in the 90s. And he still is, you know, if you've listened to my conversation with him on COVID, he's an incredible, incredible person. He wanted to buy into the technology. It was very interesting. That gave me the opportunity to work there. I started working at HGS on that project. And then when they bought into the technology, somehow I got bought with it. So I became a HGS employee at the time to do discovery work with the Affinity Mass Spectrometry platform. And that was, that was 
incredibly fun. I would say that was one of the most fun times of my career. We got a great publication out of it. It was a very interesting time because so much was happening in drug discovery and so many new tools became available. Um, it was just exploding. And there was a lot of money in the business too. I mean, uh, the late 90s were a fantastic time for biotech. Uh, it was incredibly innovative. Yeah, without, without a doubt, that was super interesting. I, I love learning these uh, these stories from from my guests. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, actually, my PhD was affinity mass spectrometry, so I can really, uh, I really, uh, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying. And I worked for MDS um, in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. We had the MDS proteomics group, and, and uh, they were one of the groups that invested. I think they bought something like 30. 30 mass specs to, you know, take that brute force proteomics approach. And that didn't really pan out so much. Why do you think that it, it worked for genomics and not as much for proteomics? You know, that's a very interesting question, Chad. I actually spent a lot of time thinking about these things later in my career when I was at USP because of the standardization aspects. And I believe that some technologies or scientific approaches become wildly successful and dominating because there's an early agreement on key items. You know, we did an analysis at the USP when I was there about sort of what are the most important analytical chapters that we have in, in the USP. And not surprisingly, HPLC was the most important chapter. Now, while HPLC to me is in the same bag as, as sequencing from the point of view that everybody agrees how it's done and how you get the right answer and, you know, the key elements are standardized. The way the technology works and the way it can be applied was also at key moments in time widely shared within, you know, the scientific area. Once we got into, I would say, the later days of the genomics game, as you know, once the uh, gene expression profiling started and a lot of these things were done, there was a lot of IP in that game and a lot of things were not widely standardized. So aside from people, and I, I say that flippantly, right? Aside from people counting red and green dots in gene expression studies, there was no standardization. And there was, at the same time, on a lot of the results, there was a lot of IP. It was not widely shared. And so the field, I would say, was never as impactful because the results didn't have broad comparability. And, you know, what I found out later in my career when I worked actually worked on just drug standardization, I found how incredibly hard it is and how how much time and how much it, you know, energy you have to spend on the, the reagents, the, the analytical approaches, the statistics and everything like that. And at a critical time of opportunity, that was never done for proteomics. And I, I believe that really, really held it back. And I, it held back the validity of the field, right? And I think, I, I think it's a huge loss, honestly. And I think, you know, who knows where it could have gone. If, if there had been more, more sharing, more, more data normalization, more, more standards early on, I think that's my, my personal observation. 
my brain's spinning here. And I think, you know, at that time, it was sort of the instruments and computing power. I mean, it was powerful, but felt powerful then. It, now it doesn't seem like it was powerful. But so now instead of that, that parallel by 30 mass specs, we can buy one mass spec that has the power of 100 back then and with the computing power. And so we're making progress now. I think proteomics is is certainly more important and maybe making a bit of a revolution with the extremely powerful instruments we have. So it'll be interesting. And, and as you mentioned, so important to the future. So great segue. You mentioned standardization and where that was a challenge. And you ended up then at USP, where USP is all about standardization. So talk to us a little bit about the mission of USP and and uh, and what, you know, what excited you to stay there for 15 years and, and things like that. USP is, you know, is the, is the U.S. pharmacopoeia. It's the official, you know, the standard setting body for medicines uh, that are marketed in the United States. Uh, interestingly, though, is I think the U.S. is one of the very few countries in the world where the, the pharmacopoeia is a private organization. It's not part of the government. I think everywhere else um, in the world, I think, and one South American country, I can't remember which one now, is it's, it's the same, but everywhere else, uh, the pharmacopoeia is part of the regulator. So USP was, was unique um, that way and still is. Um, the mission is obviously to support medicine's quality. One of the most fascinating things to me, which I would say kept me there all these years, was the incredible variety of analytical and scientific challenges that you have to solve. I mean, when you look at, and I don't know the number for the current edition of the USP, but there's over, way over 4,000 monographs in that book, plus chapters. There's, I think they have a catalog of far over 4,000 reference materials and each individual drug, anybody who's ever worked in drug development knows you can spend your entire career just figuring out one particular drug, right? And they basically hold the quality keys for thousands of them. And um, the more you learn, the more you know what you don't know. It's, it's an incredibly challenging, but very, very interesting line of work because if something happens, you know, and it may not even be in your particular specialty area, you have to come up to speed with it very, very quickly. And I was at USP when the heparin crisis happened. And I would say in my, at least, you know, again, very subjective recollection, it feels like from 2000, circa 2008 until 2012, 2013, all we worked on was heparin. And it becomes all absorbing. And, you know, you, you have to just learn everything just to fix a problem. You know, 181 patients died it became a huge global crisis, a supply chain crisis. It became all absorbing. But you also learn how important it is, right, I, to, to have the standards and to make sure that, you know, the raw materials can be tested at the border, that, you know, dialysis patients who get that material, get unfractionated heparin, get safe drug. It's, it's an incredible responsibility. As a private organization. We put so much trust in that. I don't think people realize it. It's a private organization and we just sort of trust it because we do. How is that sort of maintained with USP? This is something I've never thought about. 
Well, part of it is it has an incredibly strong governance mechanism and the standards themselves are set by scientific, independent scientific volunteers who are uh, elected and the standards are also publicly reviewed. Uh, There's a public notice and comment period. The reference materials are tested in collaborative studies. They really, I think, you know, having been around for 200 years now, I think their processes and the governance is very, very strong. Also, I think the way they work and collaborate with the regulator is very well established. So I think there are the checks and balances really are there to make sure that the standards that are that go out are scientifically valid and um, really stand the test of time, which is very, very important. So the Parenteral Drug Association, you were with them for a few years uh, in, a, in a senior uh, leadership role as well. So yeah, you know, let's explore that organization a little bit. Tell me about it and then we'll, and then we'll hit your current uh, passion and <laughs> with uh, AAPS, so an organization that I'm deeply involved in as well. Sure. So I would say the common thread between sort of my last three jobs is is working with scientific volunteers. And I think what I learned at USP is how important it is to have to bring independent scientists together to advance uh, a, a particular topic independently. And uh, that's true at, at the USP. That's true at PDA. And um, at PDA, I was the head of regulatory and scientific affairs. PDA, of course, is all about parental roles. They're very well known for their technical documents, the tech reports. And so basically did a lot of the same things that I did at USP in leading, you know, volunteer teams and developing scientific guidance, commenting on regulatory proposals, you know, doing a bit of policy work there. And I think as you sort of get older and see more of this pharmaceutical science business and regulatory landscape, I think a lot of it, uh, a lot of work becomes also, a lot of my interest also went into sort of policies and how are things done globally. I had done a lot of international harmonization work when I was at USP, working with the World Health Organization, working with other standard setting institutes. And so I have a great interest in that. How, how does that work globally? And it's always interesting to work at organizations that do have a global reach. What was incredibly fun for me at PDA, which I really, I learned a lot about manufacturing at that organization because I had always supported manufacturing and CMC, I would say from the regulatory, from the analytical side, but there's such an incredible expertise in manufacturing at that organization. So I learned a ton about sterile manufacturing when I was there, which was great. And it was sort of opened another window in in my career to learn something. And I think I'm always happy when I get to learn something. If there's one thing I've learned about you uh, since the spring when you joined AAPS and I and I came to start to know you is that uh, you are you are always asking questions and wanting to learn and your leadership at AAPS is clearly both the leader of the organization, but also as a member that I, I haven't seen that as much in the past. So I can't stress enough how much APS has done for my career over, you know, since, since early 2000s when I 
probably first got involved. Just tremendously valuable experience. And, and I feel like the experience has gotten better the last few years as I've gotten more involved. Well, you wouldn't think too many ways. I, I'm probably on the edge of <laughs> being being at capacity, but I, I love it. And uh, I'd like you to talk, feel free to be an advertisement for AAPS <laughs> and why you joined and what, what you want to do. And, and uh, because I'd love to see the more people we can get involved in this member-driven organization, uh, the better it's going to be for all the rest of us. So, I've been involved with APS for a very, very long time. I, I think I became a member in 98, which is when I joined HGS. One of the greatest benefits to me has always been that I was able to network and learn about other areas of pharmaceutical science and biotech that I didn't know about. And, you know, as we, we talked a little bit about um, my career, I kind of stumbled into drug development and in a non-traditional way because I worked for a genomics company. And as soon as we had a drug in phase one that I was supposed to support, you know, from an analytical development point of view, I realized I have absolutely no clue about drug development. You know, I'm supposed to do assay development. I really don't know what I'm doing, you know. And so I think at every stage of my career, and especially as, as my career focus has changed, AAPS has been there where I could just go. I used to go to the National Biotech Conference, which we're bringing back next year, which I'm super excited about. Me too. You know, that was just such a tremendous resource for me because I, um, you know, the, the field was evolving very quickly. The demands within our organization were, you know, evolving very rapidly. As soon as you have something in the clinic and you start talking to the regulator, it's like, well, you know, how do I validate a bioassay or how, you know, how do I do these things? And it has always been such a tremendous resource for me to go to the annual meeting, now PharmSci360, to go to the NBC, but also to network with other people in those spaces and really build the network of other scientists that I can talk to. Because if you work in a particular field, and I had worked in protein characterization, mass spec for a while, and you know this, Chad, you know the same, you know the people in that trench. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, you got to do, you know, glycan analysis or bioassay. I'm like, I don't know anybody in that space. You know, I don't know anything about it. I need to, I need to find these people. I need to learn so I don't, you know, I don't have to start, start from scratch. And one of the huge powerful things about our organization is that we have people across the drug development spectrum. We have people in, in AAPS that work on every kind of modality that you can think of. You know, they're there to talk to. I have to say, once I got to USP, I got to USP at a very interesting time. You know, we got heavily involved in, in biologics, but also Roger Williams, who was our CEO at the time, is who is an AAPS fellow. He and Vino Cha and uh, all of these other guys were working on, you know, bioequivalence approaches, and it was a very, very big topic. I learned so much about the expertise that was there and, and in these areas that I was completely unfamiliar with, and it, it was very, very powerful because, you know, all of a sudden you you have this entire you know, world of expertise available to you. And especially gaining foothold in, in that part of my career, I had to learn very, very quickly about modalities and, and you know, impurity problems and things that I've 
from biotech were totally unfamiliar to me because as my role expanded, I got more and more into small molecule chemistry and, and CMC, which, which was not my area at all. And again, you know, APS, deep, deep, deep expertise in that space, lots of people passionate in these different areas. So it's always been a fantastic resource to me. And now even more, I think now that we have those communities online where, you know, any day you can just go on and, and read what people are discussing about. And it's, you can kind of get a pulse you get on the pulse of what's going on in these different areas and drug development, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And just this week, actually, I, I did two things. I, I joined uh, another community because I exactly for the reason that you mentioned, I thought, man, this is an area I need to, well, build my community, right? And learn, but also it's really hard to learn on your own. And uh, in COVID times, the uh, the communities, I think, are more important than ever. So that uh, so that was cool. And I volunteered to, uh, to do something else. So, uh, yeah, so it's just another week in AAPS. So, uh, as I said before, AAPS is a member-driven organization. There really is something for everyone. I think sometimes people are maybe intimidated or they think it's hard to get involved or they don't know where to start. I'll start by saying if somebody wants to get involved in AAPS and doesn't know where to go, especially if you're in bioanalytical, you know, look me up on LinkedIn or send me an email or, or whatever to get in touch and I'll, I'll help you find a place to get involved with, uh, with AAPS. But Tina, can you talk about what maybe the normal channel would be to get involved with AAPS? It's that easy, Chad. I mean, some people, even I think people who are not members uh, can read it. I write, I write a column every, every Friday in the AAPS community, which is an open community where you don't even have to be an AAPS member. You can contact me there. It's the same thing. As you said, you can contact me on LinkedIn. Often people find us because of our conferences or our any type of e-learning or educational opportunities that we put on. A lot of people also hear about us because we have very, very strong career development programming and offerings. I think that's always been traditionally also something people are very interested in. Again, sort of the career transitions, you know, graduate students, postdocs, people who are at the sort of decision-making stages of their careers, you know, should I go into industry? Should I stay in academia? I think we are also unique in that we have really such a great mix of backgrounds. We have, uh, we have obviously a lot of industry folks, but we have a very strong academic representation and regulators, growing uh, presence internationally. And one thing I, I have always experienced, people are very helpful and friendly. Uh, all our members are there. People should not feel intimidated. And members and staff welcome, welcome you. You know, anybody you send an email to at APS, including myself, will be happy to talk to you about any opportunities we have for member engagement. It's something that we really take very seriously with, with every individual member. We realize that this year is very different in the way people interact and the way people, their work and the way they do their work has been affected by COVID. But I think particularly in that time, you know, the electronic touch points are super important. So, you know, just reaching out and asking the question, you know, and telling us what you're interested in. I, we want to hear about that too, because we know from the conversations with our members that people over the course of their career seek different things from AAPS. And 
it's important for us to understand what those things are and what we can provide so, so that we really have value to our members. Yeah, Tina, that's a great point because I, I can say in my career, I've I've looked for different things in, in AEPS and uh, being at a CRO uh, at Bioagilytics and, and others in the past. I, you know, at one point we're, a, we're a, a vendor who's doing advertising, if you will, there and looking for new business. And then we're also scientists attending and involved in the organization. So all sorts of, uh, of different hats. He also made me think about the academic involvement, which I, I appreciate. And, and uh, I think, you know, as a, as a active member of the bioanalytical community, we need to get more, maybe this is my pitch to get more academics involved in that particular community, because it is largely a, a, a largely a community driven by industry, which, uh, but there's a lot of really important cutting edge bioanalytical work going on in, in, uh, in industry. So can you talk to me a little more about what you're looking at for 2021 with AAPS, with the, you know, the virtual meetings and, and whatnot and how, gosh, how do you even sort, how do you begin to sort out? 2020 was hard. 2021 is maybe is even harder in, in this respect. It's a moving target. What is important to us is to really have a full calendar of interesting offerings. And I'm happy to say that I think we are pretty well planned with uh, great content all the way through August, um, the Land of Lakes conferences. But even beyond that, I mean, FarmSci 360 just wrapped up, but oh, just this past week, we've seeded all the scientific programming committees for next year. And thank you for leading the bioanalytical analytics, by the way, Chad. It's, You're welcome. I'm, I'm excited. We're, it's going to be a great program this year. Yeah. And uh, what we've really spent a lot of time on during this year is to think a little bit more systematically about our, our year and our, our programming during the year. We obviously, we want to keep um, open spots available so that we, we have the ability to, to respond to what might be going on. You know, you, you've seen us this year do some very like quick turnaround current programming on COVID, but we like to sort of, especially for sort of our cornerstone conferences, make sure that SPCs talk to each other, that they sort of have a common game plan and understand, you know, what's happening at these different conferences so that, our members really have the experience of an ongoing conversation and that there's different complementary stuff going on each quarter. We're starting in January with another COVID program on immunogenicity, which I'm very excited about. We've got some great speakers there, some great support from the FDA. We have a stability workshop planned for March. And then, of course, the National Biotech Conference. I, I am super excited We've got Mina Subramanian and Andy DeGroat as the chair and vice chair. And those ladies are just fantastic. They have very ambitious plans for that meeting. We got a really great slate of programming submissions. I'm really excited about that. And um, yeah, we're planning to pretty much right now be virtual through Land O'Lakes. Uh, we're w watching, obviously, very, very careful how this, the vaccine situation is evolving. We're at the same time, of course, already thinking about FarmSci 360 in the fall. I think the expectation is that in the fall we can have a face-to-face -face component again. So hopefully that'll come out to be true. 
I think we know that digital will not go away. I think we know that this year has shifted people's expectations, how they learn, how how they can get access to content. So I think we're putting a very, very strong emphasis on strengthening our capabilities in that space, beefing up our e-learning tools, and just being able to offer more to our members and making a very, very strong content slate available for next year as well. I'm excited. I submitted two workshop proposals for the NBC meeting. So I hope they both get accepted. If they do, I'm going to they have to enlist some help because uh, pulling off two of them would be a big, would be a heavy lift. But there's never, like I said, there's never any shortage of help to find people if you want to, you know, recruit them in to help out. So I'm, I'm hoping that those, uh, that those come through. So, uh, you know, I, I told you we'd talk a little bit about 2020, uh, kind of some highlights of 2020. I started doing research on like the top science uh, accomplishments of 2020. And the first thing that came up was raining lizards in Florida and uh, flying tree snakes. And then I got an email from you. <laughs> it was a little smarter. Uh, but, uh, but actually, the, on the lizards, it was interesting because I said that it actually is giving, they actually are studying those lizards because they froze and then fell out of the trees, right, in, in, the, in the winter in Florida. And they said, actually, show, you know, they're now using it to study how climate change may or may not affect the reptile population. So it was actually a legit research it was pretty interesting they said they're, they're much more durable than they than they thought they would be because some of these things froze froze solid and fell off the trees and then when they melt their thawed they ran away and the and the snakes i think it was more about like the aerodynamics of the snakes and things like that it was actually pretty interesting but i think you were more on the right direction when you when you emailed me and and uh I can't think of 2020 in science and not think about the Nobel Prize in chemistry with with Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel uh, Charpentier with CRISPR. That was super exciting. And I just talked with Benoit De Silva, a fantastically accomplished uh, woman in science. And I'm speaking with you. I've had a fantastic career uh, in science. And these two ladies did so much. So, I mean, what what did that mean to you as a as a woman or just as a scientist, right, uh, reacting to that Nobel Prize? as you said, super exciting. And I'll put out a teaser here that, you know, we were, of course, super lucky and fortunate that we had already booked Jennifer Doudna as our plenary speaker for PharmSci 360. And she graciously also agreed to do an interview with us for the APS News Magazine. So uh, Gopi Shankar, uh, a board member, and myself got to interview her afterwards, which was honestly super inspiring. And so that was definitely one of the highlights of, of my year. And, you know, you can look forward to reading some of her insights in, in the news magazine, I think in January. But what I was excited about, and we talked to her a little bit about that, is that they did not wait for, you know, decades, basically, to award the Nobel for this discovery for CRISPR, which... I found very interesting because when you look back on some of the others that were given for sort of molecular biology milestones like PCR, it took much, much longer. It's going to be very interesting to follow what that does to the field and, you know, how can it accelerate the development in that area? And um, I think that's terrific. And I think she's just a, a, a really inspiring person. What was really interesting to learn from her also, and that was, you know, 
touches back on what we talked a little bit about earlier is she has one foot in academia and one foot in industry, right? Because she co-founded several companies. She's very involved on the industry, on the drug development side. But at the same time, you know, she's still pursuing her academic career. And she's also involved in the in the ethics considerations of, of gene editing, which of course are also very, very important, right? This is a this is something I think that'll keep people discussing for quite some time. So I think this was very, very important. That was probably the important thing this year, scientifically. I'm very excited about it. If you ask Joy, by the way, Joy Davis, I'll give a shout out to her, our managing director. She thought this was going to be the year of the murder hornets, by the way. And <laughs> you know, that didn't play out. So. No. But uh, I think we got almost everything else this year, but not the murder hornets. So, you know, what really stuck out to me. Uh, so I had the good fortune and thank you uh, for the invitation to participate in the small group discussion with, with Jennifer. And, and uh, I, I, yeah, I can't say enough that, you know, to agree enough that how inspiring she was. And uh, the other thing that stuck out was uh, she commented that, you know, one of the things she wants to do with her prize money is to uh, really put it towards uh, underrepresented groups in the sciences, which is something that that I feel strongly about as well. And I thought, goodness, this is one of those people who seems to have 30 or 35 hours in her day while the rest of us only have 24. I don't know how she can accomplish and do everything that she does. So I Without a doubt, that was one of the uh, one of the highlights. So, you know, maybe we'll touch on one or two other highlights of of twenty twenty scientific highlights. Is there something else that jumps out to you that was really exciting from twenty twenty? You know, I, I think obviously everybody has sort of has their, <laughs> I would say, interest window or you know things they follow. I just feel like there's been so much. Maybe it's because I, you know, coming to AAPS and I, I had the privilege of working on a lot of different topics this year, but it's, we spend a lot of time working on nucleic acid-based therapies. This is uh, something, you know, beyond CRISPR and gene editing. That's an area that's picking up incredibly. Part of that, I think, is just the incredible formulation science that's going on. Again, not just the COVID vaccines, but these lipid nanoparticles, the packaging for these materials, the the molecular science that goes into that, the, the, the new lipids that are being discovered, incredible. I found that very interesting. We did a custom workshop on oligonucleotides, which kind of immersed me into sort of the entire history of that drug class and really understanding how now just over the last few years, these enabling technologies make that, you know, a drug class to have huge potential. But what they had to overcome to get there, and that's been fascinating to me. And I look forward to an entire track on that at the NBC. Now, from my work at USP, I continue to be very interested in impurities and drug quality and supply chain. And of course, sort of one of the add-on effects of the whole COVID situation, of course, is that it's disrupted the entire global pharmaceutical supply chain in a massive way, right? And I, you know, I've worked a lot with generics side of things and, you know, global supply chains have been challenged. And, you know, we've had new impurity challenges, the nitrosamine issue, many other things. Those are without 
a global pandemic going on. These are complicated things to tackle. But I would say particularly in a year like this, it's been very interesting to see how the industry has adapted to the situation and what's been necessary to tackle some of these challenges because we've seen drug shortages pop up in for drugs that hadn't had shortages in years, right? And so it's been very interesting following that and to see how the industry adapts to to deal with this public health challenge. And of course, uh, when you talk about nucleic acid therapeutics and, and when we talk about CRISPR, which the, the CRISPR technology has led to tremendous advances in, in delivery uh, mechanisms with viral capsids and whatnot, which has really enabled the two vaccines that we now have. Super, super exciting and, and uh, how all those different fields interrelate. Well, it takes a village uh, in science as well. So I want to touch on uh, one last thing that just a little bit of fun before we wrap up. So, you know, I've been asking all my guests this year, what sorts of hobbies and things have you, is there anything new you've taken on in the midst of COVID to, uh, to keep you busy? I would say I've taken on something new, uh, but I've probably done more of what I've already liked to do. I'm a knitter. I craft, so I, I enjoy knitting. My other hobby is photography. Obviously, my photography has been much more local than it has been in the past. I've been blessed over the course of my long career that I traveled extensively, so I've done a lot of travel photography over the years. And it's been a lot more a lot more time spent been on post production of photos and things that have been created in years before we've also both my husband and i enjoy cooking we always set a goal to try a certain number of new recipes and because we've been at home we've exceeded that goal by by quite a few new recipes so that's been fun yeah, well, that's fantastic. If you could see my office behind me, but if you could see the rest of my office, you'd see that actually, while it's my office, it's also my wife's yarn storage room. Ah. And uh, it's it's sort of wall-to-wall yarn. Yeah, something, something I've learned uh, as she, well, she's been a knitter for 25 years or so, but uh, something I've learned is uh, knitters collect a lot of yarn and they never get rid of the old scraps. So, yes. <laughs> so uh, someday, hopefully you can uh, meet her. I'll bring her to an APS meeting or, or something, and uh, that'd be fantastic. So um, the other thing I, I was we were joking about before is uh, you and I both have hoodies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, as you said, this is definitely a hoodie year. So uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. I, every time I do these uh, discussions, I feel like we unpack so many things. I could spend two, three hours doing these interviews. They could be like a Joe Rogan, uh, you know, two or three hour interview. But uh, I do want to, you know, thank you again uh, for joining us. I'm so excited about what you're doing at AAPS. And it's so great to get to know you better. Looking forward to sharing a glass of wine with you sometime this year. It will happen. I'm confident of that. That'd be great. Do you have any other closing comments or thoughts uh, for us as we as we close out? No, I just want to thank you very much for inviting me, Chad. It's been a pleasure. You know, I'm a people person. So having come to AAPS and, you know, obviously I already knew a lot of people when I came, but it's just, it's been a great pleasure getting to meet so many of our members and, you know, collaborating across the, the scientific spectrum 
And that's really something I tremendously enjoy. And I just want to, you know, encourage everybody who's, who might be listening to check us out. Um, we're a friendly bunch. The, uh, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you'll be volunteered for something that is going to be fun. So yeah, it's been a great pleasure being on and chatting with you. So thank you for inviting me. Hope that our listeners get interested in checking us out. Athena, thanks so much. So that is all for episode five. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside of the podcast, we have many webinars and other presentations available for your enjoyment and education. Visit bioagilitics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. And since we talked a lot about AAPS today, I'll add visit aaps.org and you'll find a lot of uh, material there as well. So don't forget to keep an eye out for season two, which is going to roll out in early 2021. We're looking forward to some great guests. We'll have world-renowned experts talking about gene therapy, diversity in the pharmaceutical industry, new and exciting technologies coming, and a conversation with a patient who's benefited from some of the recent tremendous developments in our industry. Molecular Moments would not be possible without the support of our sponsor, Bioagilitics Labs. Bioagilitics is a global contract research organization specializing in large molecule bioanalysis. Based in Durham, North Carolina, with labs in Hamburg, Germany, and Boston, Massachusetts, Bioagilitics provides high-quality bioanalytical services to leading pharma and biotech companies around the world. They offer assay development, validation, and sample analysis under non-GLP, GLP, and GCP, as well as GMP quality control testing. If you're looking to work with a team of highly experienced scientific and QA professionals through all phases of clinical development, look no further than Bioagilitics. For more information or to speak with their scientists today, visit their website at www.bioagilitics.com. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast.